Hello, I'm Arielle Kroon. And I'm Christina Della Rocha. Welcome to Season 2 of Solar Punk Presence, the podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because if solar punk as a genre of fiction dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, solar punk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Solar Punk Presence. In this episode, Ariel is talking to Aaron Aladdin, author of Gentle Gardening, a low-energy guide for uncooperative bodies. Take it away, Ariel and Aaron. Hello, listeners, and welcome to my conversation with Aaron Aladdin, gardener extraordinaire, children's book author, and most recently, author of Gentle Gardening, a guide for uncooperative bodies, which I read in about a day, since it totally reframed the gardening and disability conversation in my head. But we'll get to that later. I first want to give some context, since due to technological mishap, the first minute or so of the interview was not recorded. You didn't miss much, don't worry. I started by asking Erin to introduce herself to listeners, to tell us where she was talking to me from, and to tell me how she got to that place. Her response is mostly recorded, but she begins by telling me that she is talking to me from a small village just north of Perry Sound, Ontario, which is where both sides of her families have roots and have lived for a long time. The recording starts in the middle of that sentence, so that's enough from me. Let's get to Erin. Although I grew up... uh mostly in North Bay, where it was a little bit colder. Here, I am really happy that I can grow a few more things than I could there, and I have a lot of family and lots of trees. That's wonderful, because I met you first in Toronto, in the big city. I thought of you as someone from Toronto, but that's not true. You're actually from North Bay. Correct. I was in Toronto for nine years, and the only way I survived it was by starting a community garden at the church I was attending there. Uh, So if you're listening from Toronto, check out Garden at Kimbourne Community Permaculture Project. It's a really cool space, one street north of Coxwell Subway Station. And there's a lot of neat community groups getting involved there. That actually leads into my next question for you was, how did you get started with gardening? Well, gardening is something I grew up with. My mom had gardens everywhere we lived. And I think I was about seven uh, when I asked her for a garden of my own. And then it was maybe a year or so later that I just kind of started secretly taking over another space in the yard. And of course I was caught, uh, but my parents were fine with it. And they just said, if you're going to carry stones around, you have to wear shoes. And then everywhere I lived, I planted gardens. Are there differences in gardening in Toronto versus gardening in North Bay? How did you find that? It's a big difference in terms of climate. So North Bay is zone 3-ish. That means it's kind of the second coldest zone in Canada where you can still grow some fruit trees and a bunch of vegetables. Okay. By some, it's really only apples and maybe pears. Crab apples, definitely. Whereas Toronto spans several zones, I think Garden at Kimborn was about zone 6B. And there we could grow anything that is within the Carolinian forest. It's the very northern edge of that traditional 
expanse of that forest. And so we actually planted pawpaws there and they are still thriving, which is not something that you would expect. I've heard of pawpaws before, but I've never tried one. I've always been kind of curious. I didn't get to try any because the trees are still quite young, but I want to someday. That makes sense. The Carolinian forest. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me a bit about that? What is that? I don't know a ton, just that it's a biome that runs or kind of ran down the eastern part of North America, mostly in the States, but a little bit into Canada. And now that temperatures are warming, people are thinking, well, not only can we repopulate this traditional area with things that used to grow there like pawpaws, but we can get a little further north than it originally ran. And so people are trying to see Maybe you can grow pawpaws a bit further north than Toronto. Oh, wow. But I don't think they would like it this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I heard you mention permaculture, uh, the garden at Kimborn being a permaculture garden. Could you explain a little bit about that? For sure. When I first moved to Toronto, and I was a major culture shock, I, I really wanted something to make me feel more connected to a community, to a place, to social justice. And I started going to food justice events. And at one of them, somebody from the Toronto Seed Library mentioned the word permaculture. And I just thought it sounded really interesting. And I wrote it down. I went home and Googled it and was fascinated by this idea of people taking inspiration from ecosystems to build systems that provide humans with food, but also it's it's broader than that. You can actually structure the whole human community with permaculture ideas. So you get a lot of people talking about social permaculture versus simply a design system for a garden. And it's kind of a concept that can be used in small ways, like I do in my physical garden on my little property, or in very broad ways, like people creating intentional community using permaculture ideals. The idea of it was developed in the 1970s in Australia, but it has drawn on ideas from indigenous communities around the world. You know about um, food forests in Western Canada that were tended for generations and still provide food even when the people who lived there were removed from the lands. Mm. Uh, The Amazon rainforest, we realize now, was intentionally tended to be full of edible and medicinal plants. It wasn't just an accident. There are some food forests. Oh, I'm going to get this wrong. It's a Southeastern Asian country and bananas are the central plant. Uh, And those have been going for thousands of years. Um, Just this incredible idea of a perennial ecosystem designed to produce food and fiber and medicine. And once the system gets going, it's not that it needs no human input, but it doesn't need the kind of input that we're forever doing with our conventional agriculture, where you take the weeds out and you put the nutrients in. Mm -hmm. Um, But humans are part of the system. So you nudge things along here and there. You take the food you need to eat and it all makes sense in a closed loop. Wow, that sounds amazing. and. Yeah, like it's not quite as labor intensive as our current agricultural 
processes. And the way that we do gardening, I mean, gardening can be very labor intensive. It can be something that you really sweat at and that you have to sort of gear yourself up to go garden. It's the same thing as going to the gym almost. And it sounds like permaculture is a way to be more relaxed about it. It can be a lot of work to set up a permaculture design. There's a lot of intentional observation that happens first, and then you might do earthworks to move water in intentional ways across the land. You might be planting a lot of trees, but after about the seventh year is what people tend to say. It really just suddenly pops. Suddenly everything is thriving, and it's a lot more about maintenance than hard labor. I like that idea. And this is something that you talk about a lot in gentle gardening. I found that we've kind of slid a little bit into talking about concepts that you uh, introduce in the book. And I wanted to ask, I suppose this is kind of related, but what was your inspiration for putting together gentle gardening? Well, I got on TikTok in 2020 because having moved away from Garden at Kimboard in Toronto, I missed doing garden education because for seven years I was teaching people there. And so I thought TikTok would be a good place to make posts about gardens. Now I have chronic fatigue syndrome and POTS and a bunch of other conditions that make me not full energy almost any of the time. And so, you know, I garden in ways that work for my body. I started talking about that on TikTok. And one day in particular, I showed myself making a sheet mulched garden bed because I knew that if I tried to dig a bed in the ground, I was just going to be absolutely incapacitated. Mm -hmm. And so instead, I showed myself layering cardboard and weeds and the little bit of soil that I did have and planting directly in that, which is technique that is sometimes called sheet mulching, sometimes called lasagna gardening. And that just took off like nothing I had seen before in my TikTok experience. And the thing that struck me the most was people saying in the comments, oh my gosh, I have a chronic illness too, or I have a disability too. And I didn't think I could garden, but I think I could do this. As a result of that, I started making that kind of content regularly. And I realized as I did that the mindsets that I had learned from permaculture were really, really helpful with gardening as a disabled person. And I'm actually working on a blog post about this right now, <laughs> um, which will be up on my blog, earthundaunted.com soon. The idea of permaculture really comes down to making the most of the resources, including energy that are present in your system. And it's about putting more energy, i.e. nutrients, carbon, whatever you want to call it, into the soil itself. And so it's really easy to translate that into my energy as a gardener is a resource. And so what is the most efficient way for me to use that resource in my garden? And there are so many ways that you can draw straight lines from ideas that come up in permaculture, like growing the plants that need the most attention along a path you walk every day. 
because that way it will be automatic to care for them. You won't have to go out of your way to do it. Well, that needs absolutely no changing for a gentle gardening idea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking as someone who has memory issues, I, you know, will forget to water a plant if I don't see it. So if I planted it, you know, in a place where I walk every day, then I'm like, oh, I can water this plant that it exists and needs care. This is great, you know? But yeah, like sometimes I would probably forget to feed my cat if he didn't yell at me sort of thing. (laughs) So like I need the plants to be able to maybe not yell at me, but be more obvious. So I, I really love that. Yeah. And it's interesting that you brought up memory problems because a lot of the things that I had developed or kind of synthesized the ideas for, for someone as, with chronic fatigue, a lot of people in the comments would say, oh, that makes sense too for my ADHD, my executive dysfunction, my memory issues. So it, that's been really interesting to see all the overlap of things that are good for limited energy are also good for brains not functioning in the way you quite want them to. It sounds like it's good for the whole human person, you know? I really like this idea in permaculture and gentle gardening of the human resource, as you said, my energy as the gardener being one of the factors of energy in the garden. You're part of that garden, you're part of that landscape. And so you're working together with it. It's not just you as the gardener come from somewhere outside of the garden and you go in and you do your thing and then you leave. And the garden is itself a self-contained ecosystem or or a self-contained thing that exists without you as part of it. It's more right. of a, a trying very hard not to get into my like cyborg theory with like, you know, it's it's your cyborgian appendage. Um <laughs> but it, it is it's an extension of the self. And so being able to treat it as an extension of the self and being able to recognize it and and come to it and respect it as part of yourself and a part that maybe needs a bit more attention than um, it might otherwise get. I, I, I really, really resonate with that. I really like that. I think that's really where permaculture and gentle gardening and solar punk all overlap. This idea of us not being separate is so important. I wouldn't say that all permaculturists are solar punk because we have our permaculture bros who are problems in the comment sections and so on. But I think that anybody who embraces permaculture with optimism and with care for all peoples of the world, as well as the environment, which is really a fundamental part of it. I think that is just automatically solar punk. I think that attitude definitely just staying open to the ways in which we can make life better for everybody Mm -hmm. around us, not just the humans, but the more than human world. That's a very solar punk attitude. And I love that. I wanted to talk a little bit about that world around you, because in your second chapter in the book, you talk about partnerships with your friends and your family and your community, if possible, as a key part of gentle gardening, sort of framing it as a strategy for individuals with chronic disabilities to be able to access gardening with aid. And that's something that I really love that I think really resonates with the solar punk ethos. Could you speak a little bit more about the importance of community for disabled gardeners? 
Well, I definitely couldn't manage to do a lot of what I have in my own garden if I didn't have family nearby. Things like getting a truckload of soil or when I just had a really long run of bad days at the end of the season and Mm -hmm. frost was coming and I just couldn't do the chores. And my mom said, I will come over. You tell me what needs doing. And sometimes my energy is low, but she'll come over and do things and I'll be in the garden with her, even if I'm not working as hard. Oh, that's so nice. I'm curious to know more about your community, actually, um, if you wouldn't mind describing it a little bit for me. It's been small because of the pandemic. I moved in 2020. I have my parents down the road and other families nearby, but because my immune system isn't the best, I've been keeping a lot to myself, which has been tough. I did finally start going to a new craft circle that opened up in my village, which has just been the best experience. You just bring whatever you're working on and get together at the community center every second Wednesday and Mm -hmm. hang around and chat. And one week I brought the daylily twine that I had made in the summer and I was trying to turn it into a basket. And a lady there in her 70s said, oh, you're interested in basket making? And she came back the next time with all of her longleaf pine needles that she brought up from Florida and the beeswax she uses and the raffia that she used to make pine needle baskets out of them. And she said, with my tremor, I can't do this anymore. And just gave it all to me. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I went from somebody who really liked the idea of making baskets, but didn't want to buy materials and was just trying to figure it out with what grew on my property to someone who has made a bunch of really nice baskets. That's great. Yeah. Amazing. So I, I really, really encourage this model for anybody who craves community and doesn't know how to make it happen. Um, This kind of event that is just so low structured is great. It works for the craft circle. At Garden at Kimborn, we started events that are still going now. Uh, They're traditional skills sessions. Mm -hmm. And we knew we wanted to add an off-season event, but we just couldn't handle anything else on our plate as the leadership in terms of a lot of prep work and like gaining expertise to then pass on to others. So the way we modeled it instead was to say, hey, neighborhood, we're going to experiment with cheese making on this night. We're going to have instructions and materials come out if you want to try it with us. So we never promised expertise. Uh We just all showed up. There was a printout with directions on it. Somebody read it and the rest of us tried the steps. And it's been really, really successful. That's awesome. And what a great way to sort of crowdsource experience and knowledge as well. It's very coming from the world of academia. There's, you know, models of teaching where it's, you know, try to avoid the sage on the stage and instead be the guide by their side kind of thing. So it's, you know, like, being able to elicit that sort of group knowledge without there being any one central person who's saying, okay, I am the one who has all the the correct knowledge. And now I'm going to share this wonderful knowledge with all of you. 
peons who are here to learn from me who know nothing, you know, I -hmm. like the idea of it being a collective and collaborative effort to just learn something fun together. Yeah. Shout out to Daniel Reed at Kimborn Park, who had the idea for that and has made it happen. It was revolutionary to me as somebody who, in my early 20s, started this project and just found myself suddenly having a whole bunch of people looking to me saying, teach us how to garden. And I just flung myself into teaching mode for seven years. But I found it really hard then to balance that teaching mode with listening mode or just being present mode. And so learning that you could have this really unstructured approach and it was even more successful was just such a breath of fresh air. To me, that sounds very like anxiety making and like I would be full of imposter syndrome if people were looking at me and thinking like, aha, yes, Ariel is going to teach us the correct way to do X. I'd be like, I do not hold all the information about this thing in the world. Um, so it sounds like this collaborative way of, of learning something together really dissipates that anxiety and just gets rid of that completely. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. I did have to get over any kind of anxiety over not having all the answers because, you know, I was not a very experienced vegetable gardener when I started this garden. Mm -hmm. Um, My gardens had always been ornamental. My mom grew vegetables and I helped, but I never, you know, (laughs) learned how to grow seedlings indoors, for example. I just kind of saw that it was possible. My gran has a saying, if you can read, you can cook. And I adopted, if you can Google, you can garden. And absolutely with no shame would get a question out in the garden, say, let me check, pull out my phone and look it up. And really all the group needed was somebody to confidently say, well, let's use this idea and do it. Whether or not it was the best idea, we never knew. We just tried it. On the, on the subject of community, the reason I asked was because, because we had met in Toronto and because I felt like in Toronto, there was always something going on. There was always a way to meet new community and new people who are interested in X. I wanted to ask you now, uh, having moved to North Bay and also especially because of the, uh, coronavirus pandemic um, that has really shut off a lot of avenues of community for people. Um, So I'm glad to hear that you've sort of found more community that's been able to really enrich your practice. I'm, I'm very glad that I've been able to engage with people in person again, even though I finally did catch COVID as a result. In the couple of years where it really wasn't possible I leaned a lot on TikTok <laughs> because mm. I was just discovering this whole group of of other people with similar experiences to mine in terms of chronic illness and disability. And I was also really lucky that my picture book Outside You Notice launched in April 2021. And so I was also getting opportunities to do virtual school visits and library visits and talk to people about that book and hear about their experience noticing things outside. So that was really cool. And also very timely. I feel like because of the pandemic, it wasn't safe to gather in large groups, but it was safe to maybe go on a walk in your neighborhood and notice the things outside. 
And so I, I feel like that's really topical and a really good lesson for people of all ages to learn, honestly. <laughs> Absolutely. If if anybody benefited unintentionally from the lockdowns, it was me because the timing of that release was perfect. Overall, I wanted to ask you, why is it so important, in your opinion, that people with disabilities are able to access gardening? Well, all people should be able to access it, and we are included in the all. Mm -hmm. But in terms of it being especially good for us, I mean, it is just really healing. There are physical things like the bacteria in soil that make your brain happy. There's also spiritual feeling of well-being when you watch the things that you planted grow and bloom and feed you. You can also kind of set yourself a level of exercise that works for you. In the book, I have a whole bunch of different examples of the kinds of gardens people might have. You know, if you are really not sure what you can handle, you could start out with three pots have chamomile, lemon balm, and mint. And there you've got tea all summer. You can dry some in the fall. If you know what your body can do, you can have a bigger garden. Maybe that's in the ground. Maybe that's raised beds. Maybe it's scrounged pots sitting on a coffee table that somebody put on the curb. Possibilities are endless. And whatever works for you, intending it, you will be getting the maximum comfortable exercise that you know you can get as you tend it. And it's going to be a regular thing. You're going to be getting the vitamin D and moving your body. And I know that on tough days, mm -hmm. it can be really hard to convince yourself to do that. And having a garden gives you a tangible reason to be getting up and out, even if it's just briefly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I can say from my own personal experience, just having a little balcony garden is even enough to bring that vitamin D, like you said, getting up and moving your body and being able to really feel the satisfaction of being like, yes, I, I grew that. I did that. The, the, mm -hmm. the plants and I, we have, a, we have an understanding. And that's something that shouldn't be downplayed because especially if you are limited enough that you maybe can't work or can't do a lot of the things that you want to, the feeling of accomplishment when you grow something is extraordinary. And for anybody who's listening to this and thinking, oh, I don't have a green thumb. Stop that. That's made up. It's just people who haven't killed enough plants yet to figure out how to keep them alive. But I do have maybe... Uh, selective green thumb. That's fine. I can't There's keep houseplants alive. Yeah, I, I loved how you mentioned in the book being easy on yourself when you maybe aren't able to keep alive the so-called easy plants that everybody is like, oh, you just, you know, like put it in the ground and it grows. It's fine. I've definitely had a couple of experiences where I've bought those plants that you put in the ground and it grows and it's fine and it's it's not fine. <laughs> <laughs> It was such a mind-blowing idea when it first occurred to me that if I gave up on planting lettuce from seed and just bought some starts from the farmer's market, there would be absolutely no consequences. It would not matter to anyone in the world that <laughs> I had given up. 
it was totally fine. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, what is your definition of get it, giving up or success, right? Uh, my definition of giving up would be, oh, well, I'm just going to like buy actual bags of lettuce from the farmer's market or grocery store. I'm not going to even try those seedlings. So kudos to you for, for taking that step. And and I still planted seeds the next year and they grew better than usual. So whatever you have to do to get through, do it. <laughs> it's not the end of some line. Yeah. Nobody's going to swoop down and say, oh, I'm going to take away your gardening license. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do it right this time. <laughs> yeah. I swear, if you go online and say, I, as a gardener, killed whatever plant, your comments are going to be full of other gardeners saying, oh yeah, like I've killed so many plants in my life. That's how you get good. You, you just have to kill enough plants first. Oh, that's so refreshing to hear. That's so refreshing to hear other gardeners uh, coming together and just admitting that, yeah, you know what? There are some things that just don't work and that's fine. And I, as a person, am not internalizing that failure and it doesn't mean anything about me and my character, but rather Mm -hmm. just move on to the next project. One of the, um, actually the very first principle in permaculture is observe and interact. And I have found that making observation a really important part of my gardening as a gentle gardener has really made a big difference because if I keep track and just pay attention and make sure I notice what has died, what hasn't worked, what else was going on when something failed, then that is how I learn from it and do it differently the next time. It's also how I figure out, you know, what things basically grow themselves. There's no rule that we have to always, you know, grow the standard grocery store vegetables. Mm -hmm. We can eat the lamb's quarters that self-seeds everywhere in our garden and is much more interesting than spinach. We can learn other weeds that grow around us. We can say, oh, I planted chamomile two years ago and it's still self-seeding. Great. I'm going to focus on that instead of this other thing that's difficult for me to germinate. Right. And I I imagine that will vary depending on where you are and what the soil is like where you are. And I mean, if you're working in pots or or raised beds, sort of what you have put into the soil and as to sort of what plants are going to pop up and uh, self-propagate. So on the note of observing and and taking notes, and I just an aside, I love how in, in gentle gardening, you do recommend that you keep a little garden notebook to uh, write all that down. I I really like that idea. I'm very curious, when you move from Toronto to North Bay, upon observing your land, did you write down any any plans for what you were going to do? Or did you think, yes, this is definitely something that I am going to be able to tackle? Or was it was it overwhelming? Was it something that was maybe, to, to, to borrow a term, was it daunting at all? It was exciting uh, when I came up to Perry Sound because I was in the midst of taking the women's permaculture guild, three year long permaculture course. (laughs) Um, And so that takes you step by step through how you 
do your observation and make a design. So what I did was I got on Google Earth and I found my site and mm -hmm. I printed out the satellite photo of it and then got a, a roadmap and like and tried to very, very precisely figure out this is where the edges of the property I'm renting are. This is where the house is. And then I spent a year observing things like where does the sun move across the property? Where is the wind coming from? It actually comes very strong from the Northwest, which is something that I have had to mitigate with my design because it's it's really intense. I had to pay attention to where are animals coming through. I live between two farm dogs who are brothers and are always visiting each other. The way I designed my fencing was specific to the way that they traveled across my property. The, the whole observe for a year thing didn't mean I didn't start gardening right away because how could I not? But I figured before I make any big decisions like fruit trees or digging stuff or whatever, I will do my observation. And in the meantime, I will plant annual vegetables. My neighbor who's a farmer came and prepared where the previous owner had had a garden. And so the soil was a bit more fertile mm -hmm. um, for me. So I was able to quite easily have a nice kitchen garden there. And that is how I experimented and got my hand in with growing in these conditions while also paying attention to the bigger stuff that would inform my design the next year. Now that you break it down like that, yeah, that doesn't sound quite so overwhelming to me at all. That sounds like you did a lot of, of sort of groundwork and thinking about it beforehand. My next question is one that I've been kind of curious about um, myself, moving back to Ontario and sort of being involved in a lot of there's a lot of houselessness in my community at the same time as there's a lot of calls for land back at the same time as there's a lot of calls for indigenous sovereignty. And I joined a community garden in my area, which is wonderful. But when it comes to gardening on land in Ontario, I kind of worry that as a settler, I'm sort of contributing to this ongoing colonialism of the Canadian state. And like, this is something I fret about pretty constantly. So I'm trying to live my values, but at the same time, I'm trying to contribute right now to sort of regenerating the land where I can. I was wondering, what is your take on this? And am I just thinking about this too much? Oh, you're thinking about it the exact same amount that I do. And my approach has been, just as you said, to regenerate the land that I am on. I did want to explore everything I could about the history of this land so that I fully understood the context that I was growing in. The area that I'm in has kind of a, a foggy treaty history because it was incorrectly included in the Robinson-Huron Treaty, and then that was rectified and it was included in the 1923 Williams Treaties. But I'm also very close to a border with the actual Robinson-Huron Anyway, the, the upshot of that was where I am, there was not a ready-made municipal, here is our, our statement about this mm. land of its treaty history. That work had not been done for my specific area. Mm -hmm. So I decided that for my blog, where I 
you know, write about growing on this land. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do a really deep dive into that treaty history. So I found the treaty. I found a report that the government had done on the treaty later. I found the official apology they made to the nation that had been involved in the treaty later because, of course, they gave them really terrible terms and made sure that, you know, I hadn't just read about it. I had read it and rewritten it and understood it and remembered it so that I still don't have a like off the cup land acknowledgement that I can rattle off if people ask, which they do sometimes because of my work. Uh, but I can give you a thousand word essay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and once in a while, I also have the opportunity to participate in community events put on by somebody from the Paris Sound Friendship Center, or there was a, a protest happening in Perry Sound, and I was able to say, okay, I'm going to add pressure on the municipality over this issue. I just, I try to stay tuned in. On your blog, have you, have you included this, this deep dive sounds really, really <laughs> interesting. Have you, did you blog about that at all? I did. Um, if you go to the bottom of any page, there will be a land acknowledgement button and that will take you into this. I also made a three-part TikTok kind of summarizing it. I, I just wanted to know it well because, I mean, I I studied history in undergrad. I didn't end up getting my degree in it, but I had intended to. And I know how much I have forgotten about that, even though I found it very interesting. And so I didn't want to just read this and forget it. I've heard a lot of critiques lately of the whole land acknowledgement as a knee-jerk kind of reflex that people don't really reflect very deeply on. And so it sounds like you've actually done the work so that people can go and click and, and learn more when they do see that land acknowledgement. I know that you know the land acknowledgements, that was one of the, the truth and reconciliation recommendations. And it has done the job of at least giving people the vocabulary and awareness that they are on this treaty territory. But it's definitely gotten to a point where people are reasonably looking for more. I wanted to end off by asking you, what kind of projects are you working on now? Uh, And what are you growing or making or doing? I know that it's like the middle of February when we're doing this interview. So maybe well, maybe have you started your seeds or or do you have plans? I haven't started my seeds. I do want to do some winter sowing, um, but I haven't bought enough things in clear plastic containers this winter to have a good supply of them for that. So I need to do some scrounging. I'll start some some brassicas that way, put them in a snowbank, let them germinate when they want to. I want to separate my worms from their castings in my indoor worm bin. I want to have those ready to use in my garden this summer. I have ordered my seeds. I have not yet redrawn my garden map for the year and figured out where I'm going to put everything. I've discovered that because my energy is going to run out at some point in the growing season, it is really helpful if I have made all the decisions beforehand. Decision fatigue is real. Um, mm-hmm. And it's nice to not have to, or well, it's nice to be able to just kind of turn your brain off and, and let your body do the work and run along the 
plan that you have set out for yourself because you can trust your your past self to have figured this stuff out already. Last year was the first time I managed to do succession sowing in some of my beds mm-hmm. where you harvest one early crop and then plant another one right after. And the only reason that I actually did it was because I had figured out exactly what I was going to do and wrote it right on my garden map. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was really great to have you on. I learned a lot um, and I'm sure that our listeners did as well. And uh, where can our listeners go to find out more about uh, your book, Gentle Gardening, just about gentle gardening in general, or follow you and your projects? They can find Gentle Gardening on the books and products page of earthundaunted.com. That's my blog. They can also find me at Erin Aladdin on TikTok or Instagram or Twitter if I remember to show up on Twitter. I'll include those links then in our, our show notes. And so everybody can go and and click those, follow the links and check out Erin's amazing blog. Thank you so much again for this, Erin. This was such a lovely conversation. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in and stay solar punk. And don't forget, support us on Patreon so we can keep bringing you new episodes. Thank you for listening to Solar Punk Presents, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples and in Germany. The opening and closing music of this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Until the next episode, keep dreaming and keep up the good work.